You need the Holy Spirit to do what you can't do, and that is to change you at the most basic heart level. And He will. You expend maximum effort depending and trusting Christ and His Spirit to empower your obedience and to change you in the process. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. What does it look like to live like Christ, to walk in a manner worthy of His calling? How do you become more like Him each and every day? Hello again, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom will conclude his current series with part 12 of The Believer's New Relationship to Sin. Tom has taken us on a tour of the Apostle John's first epistle, with passages found in chapters 1 and 2. All believers, through conversion to Christ and Christianity, have a new relationship with sin. And as we wrap up this series, Tom will examine more closely what it means for believers to be obedient to the commands of Jesus Christ. The encouraging thing about it is that, as you'll discover, in the end, obeying Christ's commands and seeking to be like Him are one and the same thing. And together, they are the most accurate diagnostic tool of your spiritual condition. Believer, are you spiritually alive? Let's join our teacher to find out more on The Word Unleashed. No one who abides in Him, that is, who continues in a true relationship to Jesus Christ, sins, and that means habitually sins, keeps on sinning, walks in the darkness. No, that's just impossible. Profession to know Jesus and to say, I know him, means you've got the antibody. You can't help it. The antibody's in your spiritual bloodstream of obedience, and you're going to obey because you have the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit will cause you to walk in God's words. Not perfectly, but He'll cause you. Look at Titus. The same problem arose in, on the island of Crete where Titus ministered. And notice verse 10 of Titus 1. There are many rebellious men, empty talkers, and deceivers especially in their case, those who had a Jewish background and had come to profess Christ. But notice how they're described in verse 16. Here's, here are false believers. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. As one author put it, actions speak louder than words, we say. We mean that actions are a closer indication of the real person, a better window into the soul. Words are comparatively cheap. They can easily deceive. Whatever he may claim, the person who disobeys does not actually and truly know God as God. If he did, he would bow unquestionably to his authority, wisdom, and power. So the false Christian consistently disobeys Jesus' commands. That brings us to the other side, verse 5. A true Christian consistently obeys Jesus' commands. Verse 5, but whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. Now what does it mean here to, to keep? Whoever keeps his word. 
Well, let's start with the word word. Notice that instead of the plural commandments in verse 4, now John speaks of the singular word. He's speaking of everything Jesus taught as sort of a collective, his word. Whoever keeps his word, whoever obeys his word. Now, John cannot mean perfect obedience. Because if he did, he'd be contradicting himself. Remember back in chapter 1, verse 7? Even as true Christians walk in the light, they need cleansing from sin. In chapter 1, verse 9, true Christians regularly have to confess their sins. Chapter 1, verse 10, true Christians don't deny that they actually continue to sin. Chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father. So keeping the commandments is not perfect obedience. I love the way John Calvin puts it. Listen to this. He does not mean that those who wholly satisfy the law keep his commandments. No such instance can be found in the world. But, and here, I love this definition. Listen to this. But, those who strive according to the capacity of human infirmity. In other words, those who work hard in spite of their human weakness to form their life in obedience to God. Let me read that again. Here's what it means when it says those who keep His Word. Those who strive according to the capacity of human infirmity to form their life in obedience to God. That's what it means to keep His Word. As one Greek lexicon puts it, this word keep means to persist in obedience. Practically, what does it look like to keep His Word? Well, there are several important elements. Let me just give them to you for you to think about. First of all, if you're going to keep His Word, you have to know His Word. You can't keep what you don't know. So it starts with knowing His Word. Secondly, There is a desire to obey. So you have to know the Word, and then you have to desire to obey it. And that desire has been implanted in you, if you're a Christian, by the Holy Spirit. Thirdly, you expend maximum effort to obey. In other words, you have to do something. God isn't going to zap you. He expects you to expend maximum effort to try to obey what God has said in His Word. And number four, then you depend on Christ and His Spirit to empower your obedience and to change you. You see, you can't change yourself. You can obey, you can seek to obey and expend maximum effort, but you can't change your heart. Just like a kid, right? There are lots of kids who obey without their heart being really engaged or changed. Well, the same thing is true for us. We are to expend maximum effort. But as you expend maximum effort to obey, you need the Holy Spirit to do what you can't do, and that is to change you at the most basic heart level. And He will. That's sanctification. What I've just described is biblical sanctification. You expend maximum effort depending and trusting Christ and His Spirit to empower your obedience and to change you in the process. What does such obedience show? Verse 5. Whoever, by the way, whoever here refers to all genuine believers, whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. What does he mean? First of all, let's take that expression, the love of God. That's a bit ambiguous. 
It could mean God's love for us, or it could mean our love for God. Now, in context, I think it has to mean our love for God. Let me give you several reasons. First of all, because that's how John uses this expression throughout his letter. Look, for example, at chapter 2, 1 John 2 and verse 15. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, here it is, the love of the Father is not in him. Does he mean God, uh, God's love for us isn't in us? No, he means if we love the world, we don't really love God. Okay? Same thing is true in chapter 3, verse 17. Whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does that person love God? That's what he's saying. You can't really love God and not love the people around you. So he uses it this way throughout his letter. So I think it's best to understand it back in our text as our love for God. In addition, remember in verse 5 of chapter 2, John is speaking of what in us provides evidence that we know Christ. Well, God's love for us doesn't prove that we know Christ. It's our love for God that proves it. And then finally, I think this is the clincher, in chapter 5, verse 3, it's used this way and can only mean that. Look at chapter 5, verse 3. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. It, that You can't read that to say, this is God's love for us, we keep His commandments. No, it's clearly saying, this is our love for God, in that we keep His commandments. So, back to our text then. Go back to chapter 2, verse 5. Whoever keeps his word in him, our love for God has been truly perfected. John's point is, when we consistently keep Christ's word, we show that we truly love him. I mean, it's, it's the same at a human level, right? If I tell my wife all day long, sweetheart, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you, and I never do anything for her that demonstrates that, that's not love. Well, the same thing is true when it comes to Christ. You can't love Christ and not seek to honor and obey Him. So, obedience shows love, just like those other values. I mean, it's like courage, for example. If I say, you know, if, when, I'm, when I'm on the boat heading to the battlefront, I'm saying, I'm a really courageous person. I am filled with courage. Well, that's only proven when? When I get to the battlefield. You can say anything. It's demonstrated if it's a reality, and that's what the point is here. John's point is, when we consistently keep Christ's word, we make it clear that we truly love him. I mean, again, look at the illustration in 1 John 3, verse, verse 16. We know love by this, that Christ laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? How can he say he truly loves God? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. Again, if I say to somebody, brother, I love you, and they say, you know, I, I, have, I have all these needs. I don't have food to eat. I don't have a place to stay. And I say, you know what? I love you. And, you know, I have all the resources in the world to meet those needs, but be warmed and be filled. 
Hope somebody meets those needs. I'll pray for you. That's not love. Love demonstrates itself. And that's what he's arguing. John Stott writes, True love for God is expressed not in sentimental language or mystical experience. That's how most people think of love for God. I feel love. No, he says, True love for God is expressed not in sentimental language or mystical experience, but in moral obedience. Now, let me just say that what I'm teaching you right now is completely out of step with contemporary Christianity. And I'm very much aware of that. I mean, today, if you talk about obedience, you're often labeled as a legalist. Folks, that is just symptomatic of the evangelical church's consistent failure to teach the basic biblical doctrine of sanctification. Tragically, I know a pastor, someone who has taught in this church in the past, who has made shipwreck of the faith, who told his congregation, he actually said to his entire church, if you read your Bible every day, you're a legalist. John says, the one who professes to be a Christian and lives in disobedience to Jesus Christ is a liar because his behavior denies his profession of Jesus Christ as Lord. The believer's new relationship to sin is shown by obedience to Christ's commands. There's one last way this new relationship to sin is shown, and that is shown by a desire to be like Christ. A desire to be like Christ. Verse 5, by this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Now, John changes the structure of his argument yet again. In this case, the claim of the false Christian isn't directly stated but implied. Well, let's imply it. Here it is. This is what's implied. A false Christian is content with his current condition and does not desire or pursue likeness to Jesus Christ. You can see this because look again at at verse 5, the second half of verse 5 and verse 6. If that's true of a genuine Christian, then the opposite is true of a false Christian, right? Doesn't that make sense? So let me put it that way. Look again at the middle of verse 5. Let me read it that way. By this we know that we are not in him. The one who says he abides in him and does not walk in the same manner as Jesus walked. I mean, that's what Jesus said back in John 8. Remember verse 44, he said, unbelievers, they live like their father, the devil. That's who they are. That brings us then to what John does say here, and it's this. A true Christian desires and pursues likeness to Jesus Christ. Look again at how he puts it. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Now, this word abide is a confusing word for many Christians. This Greek word occurs 24 times in this letter. It literally just means to stay, continue, or remain. That's what the word means, to stay, continue, or remain. For example, in 2 John 9, we're told to abide in the teaching about Jesus Christ. That's not mystical. That means remain, continue in the teaching you receive about Jesus Christ, the right doctrine. 
Same thing in 1 John 2.19. You remember the, the false Christians went out from us because they were not of us. If they had really been Christians, they would have remained. That's the word, abide. They would have remained with us. So understand then that this word abide is not what you may have heard taught, and that is that it implies some closer, more intimate relationship with Christ than the average Christian. You know, I'm abiding in Christ. It's not what that word means. The word simply means to remain, to stay, to continue. So John says, if we are claiming to continue to stay with Christ, to remain in Christ, then we ought to be walking in the same manner as he walked. Notice that as he walked. That looks at the entire life of Jesus Christ. It's like taking a snapshot with your iPhone. Boom, there's the picture. Look at the life of Christ. That's the pattern we're to follow. We are to perpetually order our patterns, habits, and lifestyle to reflect our Lord's righteous life. The goal isn't to sort of vaguely resemble him. The goal is to be just as he walked, it says. You understand this is God's goal for you if you're a Christian? God's goal for you is to be like his son. Look at chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be, but we know that when he appears, we will be like him. That's the goal. In Romans chapter 8, verse 29, Paul says, if you're a Christian, God predestined you. Don't be scared of that word. Pre means before, destined or destiny. He predetermined your destiny. What was his predetermined destiny for you, Christian, it was to be conformed to the image of his son. That was what God had in mind. It's what every true Christian desires. But what does it look like to walk as Jesus walked? Let me just give you a couple of big ideas. It means to be like him in our characters. Read Galatians 5 and the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, meekness. Those qualities they describe Jesus Christ. You want to walk as he walked? Demonstrate those qualities. Secondly, it means to, to be like him in our priorities. What drove Jesus? Matthew 24, love God and love people. That's the pri those are the priorities of your life, Christian. Love God and love people. It's not all the stuff. It's not your task list. And it, to be like him means in our daily obedience be like him. Obey God's word like Jesus obeyed God's word. John 8, 29, I always do the things that are pleasing to the Father. There's the pattern. That's why from heaven in Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, the Father spoke and said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased because he does the things that please me. He obeys my word. Jesus, remember in that passage we looked at earlier, said, who can convict me of sin? I obey God. That's the pattern for us. We need to imitate our Lord's obedience. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ, Paul says. This is how true Christians live. But in the end, take those last two points I've made together. In the end, to obey Jesus' commands to us and to seek to be like him are really one and the same thing. And together, those are the most accurate diagnostic tools that exist. 
of our true spiritual condition. You want to know your true spiritual condition? This is it. This is how you know. It's so important that it's how Jesus ended the Sermon on the Mount. Turn to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Jesus says, Not everyone on the day of judgment who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So not everybody, he says, who says, I'm a Christian, I know you, Lord, is getting in. That's a pretty frightening thought. In fact, he says, many, verse 22, will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, look at what we did in your name. Verse 23, and I will say to them, I never knew you. You might claim to know me, but I never knew you. Depart from me. Now, Christian, you don't have to worry if that's going to be you because Jesus tells us who they are. Look at the last phrase in verse 22, 23 rather. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Those are the people who are going to show up at the judgment and say, I know Jesus. I know you, Lord. And he's going to say, I didn't know you. You didn't, you didn't obey me. Your life is characterized by sin and rebellion and disobedience to me. And then he goes on to tell the parable, verse 24. Therefore, in light of that, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. He, he laid his Christian life on the right foundation. And when the judgment comes, verse 25, the rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew, slammed against that house. It withstood the judgment. It didn't fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The judgment comes, the day of judgment, the rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and slammed against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. These are the people Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. Now, in the story, what's the rock? Here are two professing Christians show up at the judgment. They, they build houses that look similar. Christian, Christian sort of structures that look similar on the outside. They both claim to know Christ. One of them survives the judgment and the other doesn't. What's the difference? What's the rock? The standard Christian answer is Jesus. Wrong answer. That's true elsewhere. I mean, Jesus is the rock, but that's not the point here. Look at it again, what he says, verse 24. Everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them is the one who built his house on the rock. Verse 26, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them built his house on the sand. The bottom line is the reality of your profession of faith in Jesus Christ and what will show it to be real, what will endure the judgment is whether or not your life is built on the reality of your profession. You profess Jesus is Lord. So the, the question is, is that the reality of your life? Do you hear his words and obey them? If not, John says, you're a liar and the truth is not in you. If you want to be like him, not just a a couple of sins in your life that sort of irritate you and you don't like the fact that they control you and you'd love to be rid of those, but if you could be rid of those, you'd still be content with your life as it is. Not that, but a real desire to be like Jesus Christ. Then you pass the test. You're the real thing. You know him. Be encouraged. Let's pray together.
That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed. And that concludes his current series titled The Believer's New Relationship to Sin. Join us next time for a brand new series as Tom once again takes us to God's Word. Well, Tom, before we end our time today, how about sharing a closing thought with us? Friend, I'm so glad that you have joined with us through this remarkable passage from the Apostle John. And I hope that you've seen that John wrote this for the encouragement of those who are true believers. Yes, it can help us see if we're not a true believer, but if you have a new relationship to sin, if you are marked by the things that we've learned in this passage together, then you can have confidence that you are in Christ. This is one of the three great tests that John lays down. It is the clearest and most incontrovertible proof that you are in fact in Christ. Do you have, in fact, a new relationship to sin so that you hate it and you long for holiness and you pursue it from this point forward in your Christian life? Thanks, Tom. And friend, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear from you. And if you haven't reached out before or if you're a first-time listener, We'd like to send you Tom's book, Jesus' High View of Scripture, free of charge. Just subscribe to The Word Unleashed on our website, and we'll mail you a free copy of Tom's book. And don't forget to connect with us on social, at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's the word unleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.